Good morning, Grace. We can do better than that. This is the Lord's Day. Come on. Good morning, Grace. All right. Today's passage comes from the book of Exodus, chapters 22, starting in verse 16 and going to chapter 23, verse 19. So that's chapter 22 in the book of Exodus, starting in verse 16 going to chapter 23, going to verse 19. If you're using a pew Bible today, it's on page 63. Page 63. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is, who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not extract interest from him. If, you ever, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is the only covering, and it, is and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malice witness, malicious witness. You shall not fall in with many who do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall, for, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. 
You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall, get, you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you, you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor and what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. And, you, and when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of, of my sacrifice with any leaven, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. This is the word of God. Good morning, church. We are in a series in the book of Exodus called From Slavery to Glory. This is the account, the ancient account of how God rescues the nation of Israel, the people of Israel after 400 years of slavery. He's rescued them out with plagues, signs and wonders, and now they've gathered out at the foot of Mount Sinai. They are free people. And God comes down and shows them his glory, and he gives them his law. That's where we are in this book. Where he's, he's revealing his law to them, his law to follow. These laws would be the laws that set them apart from every other nation. In fact, it was the giving of the law that is the birth of the nation formally. This is the, the law is their constitution, and what we are listening to right now is their independence day. He gives them the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, as God will call them later in Exodus, the Ten Words, timeless laws. And then in Exodus 21 to 23, where we are right now, it is known as the Book of the Covenant. That's what Moses will call it in Exodus 24, the Book of the Covenant. This section covers a wide variety of legal issues, property issues, instructions on worship. Basically, they're case studies at this time, in this place, in this context. They're case studies to apply the Ten Commandments to these people. And we've said this multiple times, but I want to repeat it before we get into it. The law is a response to redemption. It's not a precondition for their redemption. In other words, God rescued them from Egypt by his grace, and then he calls his people to obey. That's the order. The law was meant to be a source of their freedom, right? Uh, you're a free people now. Here's what it looks like to live in freedom. You obey me. 
The law was meant to be a source of freedom, not a source of burdens. It was meant to show them how to love God and how to love one another. And so today's message is law and love. Law and love. Now, some of you may be thinking, why in the world are we studying these outdated laws? Like, did you hear what some of these things said? This is strange. It's weird. We could never obey them. I'll never see a neighbor under his donkey in a burden and I have to help him. Uh, That'll never be the case. And if I do, that's odd, very odd, and I probably will not help him. You, know, you, might th- you, might, you might be here singing, thinking, those people back then needed these laws, but we modern people, right? We don't need a religion that has laws. We don't need these kind of rules. Maybe even what I just said about the, the law was meant to bring freedom and not a burden. Maybe that sounds ridiculous to you. Let me share two testimonies, te- two testimonies with you that I think might be encouraging, and then we'll get into this. The first is, is shared by an Old Testament scholar. He wrote a commentary on Exodus. His name is Chris Wright. And he, was, he shares about a conversation he had with a young professional uh, at a conference he was speaking in, in India. And after his talk, this young Indian professional came up to him and said, that I became a Christian after reading the Old Testament. And, and Professor Wright was like, well, tell me more. And he said he grew up in a Dalit village, the lowest of the low among the outcast groups. And he, he said he was determined to break free from his despised state. And so he was able to get to a university. And, and at university, he walked into a common room and he found a Bible left by a fellow student in his own language, in the Telugu language. And he, he randomly opened this Bible up and started reading in the book of First Kings, of all places, about a man whose vineyard was stolen by a wicked king and queen. And, and he was amazed. And he told the professor, he said, this was my story. False accusations, confiscations of land, violence, and murder. He said, my family suffered all these things. So he went back and he started reading the Bible from the beginning. And when he got to the laws of Exodus, he was even more amazed at all the details of how the people were instructed to live. Especially how they were called to treat the poor. And he told Dr. Wright, this God thinks of everything. Eventually, he read more of the Bible and he read the New Testament and he was transformed through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're thinking, well, maybe people from other cultures find the Old Testament compelling for various reasons, but it doesn't resonate with people here in the West. Let me tell you a second testimony of a guy in my own small group who grew up in America and he stated just this past week as we were talking about the law, he said, uh, you know, he grew, up in the na- he grew up and went to the Navy. He enlisted in the Navy and he's going all around the world on a ship. And he said he wasn't a Christian and he countered this, a Christian on the boat. And he was so annoyed by this guy, but he kept referencing the Bible. And he's like, I need to figure out how to argue with him. And so he found a Bible on the boat and he started reading the Bible for himself. And he started at the beginning. And when he got to Exodus and the Israelites delivered out of Egypt and God instituting the law, he was astounded. He literally, he said, this God is just. And he marveled at the instructions for all of all aspects of life. And it was the law that led him to keep reading. And it was a major factor in convicting him of his own sin and leading him to faith in Jesus Christ. Jack Wilson, who was the principal here at Grace Christian School for a number of years and lived the rest of his life to serve the Lord in full-time education ministry. So listen, as we study the book of Exodus, as we continue studying it, as you wrestle with it, please consider how God would use his word, even his law, to transform your heart and your mind. 
If you want to know how Jesus summarized the Old Testament, he, says, he summarized it this way. Here's how you summarize the law. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says in Galatians, you can sum up the whole law in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So that's what we're going to talk about, law and love. Lesson number one. God's law provides the foundation for loving your neighbor as yourself. God's law provides the foundation for this reality, this truth, this teaching. Notice how the law here promotes justice and compassion. Chapter 22, 16 and 17. God addresses justice for women. He says, there's a case where a man seduces a woman. This is not referring to rape. How do we know that? Because there are specific laws regarding rape in Deuteronomy 22, and the penalty for that was death. God takes sexual violence seriously. This is a situation that indicates, he uses a word that indicates some level of willingness on the part of the woman, even if the man is particularly responsible Maybe he's wooing her. Maybe he's whispering sweet nothings. Whatever he's doing, he's trying to convince her that that she should be his. And when they are together, when they come together in sexual intimacy, it says now this man is obligated to make a commitment to this woman. And he does so by first offering a bride amount, amount of money given to the father of the bride to seal the marriage. And if you're thinking, wow, is he buying the, his wife? No. This bride price was actually meant to protect the woman because it showed that the man had the financial means to provide for her and her future family. Second, the man is also obligated to marry her. But, it says, if the father refuses, if the father of the woman, he has the authority to step in and stop the marriage, the father might decide one sinful act must not necessarily lead to a lifelong commitment. And if so, the man is still obligated to pay the bride price. What in the world does this have to do with today? First, within this cultural context, these laws were meant to elevate women. God says, you can't just run around with anyone you want without serious consequences. In fact, this is the first culture in history in which adultery was not just a sin for women, but a sin for men. Second, God's laws regarding premarital sex shows how serious it is to engage in sexual relations outside of the covenant of marriage. And the New Testament confirms this. The consequences for intimacy outside of the covenant of marriage in Israel were serious and severe. And now, thousands of years later, we live in a culture where sex before marriage and sex outside of marriage is not only commonplace, it's the norm. Some of you here might not even think it's that bad. Some of you might even be engaging in sexual intimacy outside of the covenant of marriage. What do we do? Should we just get with the times already? Right? Should we just change, adapt with the change in culture? Or should we stand on God's word as our only authority and humbly declare this is wrong? Not only because God says it's wrong, but because it goes against how he designed us. Sex is designed for the covenant bond, the covenant marriage, the covenant commitment between a man and a woman. And if you are engaged in sex outside of that context, you are betraying God's command and betraying God's design. And can I also add this? 
if you are not engaged in sex within the context of marriage, you are betraying God's command and God's design. If that describes you, either of those two, let me invite you to make a change today. If you're not married, married, abstain from intimacy now. Show respect for the body and soul of the person you claim to love so much. If you need help or support, we're here to help. There are godly men and women in this body who are ready to come alongside you, not to condemn you, but to speak grace and truth into your life as you walk through that journey. Do you see your own sexual purity as a way of loving your neighbor? Are you pursuing sexual purity? Verse 21 to 24. It switches gears. Now these are laws focused on how the Israelites were to treat sojourners. These are people who are not like them ethnically. And here we see God calling his people to show compassion to people who are outsiders. The word sojourner in Hebrew doesn't just mean someone passing through. We tend to think of that when we hear in English, sojourn, you're kind of passing through. No, the word sojourner is someone who leaves their home and takes up residence in a foreign land. Today, we would call that an immigrant. And God's warning is very clear to his people. Do not wrong the immigrant. God even says, if you do mistreat them, and they cry out to me, I will hear their cry and my wrath will burn. God is saying to his people, if you as a nation do not care for the disadvantaged, you will not survive as a nation. Instead, he says, they must be gracious, hospitable, and welcoming. Why? What's the reason? Give us evidence. Why should we even do that? And God tells them, you should be the most welcoming people on the planet because you were sojourners yourselves. Don't forget where you've come from. Look at chapter 23, verse 9. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God is reminding his people in this covenant, this book of the covenant, you had to leave your home back when Abraham lived in Canaan and you had to go live in Egypt when there was a famine and then you became enslaved for many years and you were oppressed. You know what it's like to be outsiders who are far from your home. You know what it's like to be despised by the nationals. Should you not have more compassion on those who are outsiders and living among you? They were to show grace because they had been shown grace. Look, you do realize that even if your family has lived in the U.S. for many generations, all of us are immigrants or children of immigrants. My parents got their immigration papers approved, and in 1970, my mom and dad moved from Egypt to start a new life in America, and I am incredibly grateful to the sacrifices my mom and dad made to allow me to be born here or live in this country. I am an American This is my earthly home, but it is not my ultimate home. I am a citizen of heaven first and foremost, and so are you, Christian. We know what it's like to not be home yet, don't we? We're bound for glory. We've said this over and over. This is not the promised land, is it? 
I don't care what a politician tells you. This is not the promised land. It might be a beautiful land, and it is. It might be a land of opportunity, and it is. But it is not, and I repeat, and will never be the promised land. There is a day coming where all our tears are wiped away. All our guilt and shame, we sang about it. That day is coming. It's just not today. It might be today, but it's not this moment. <laughs> Lord Jesus, come. I mean, please. I would love for it to be today. Of all the people we as Christians should be warm, welcoming, hospitable, and caring towards immigrants, we should not forget where we've come from, that Christ rescued you and I out of slavery to sit in death, and he gave you life, and he gave you peace, and he gave you joy. And you may say, well, I don't agree with our immigration policies. Okay, I don't agree with some of them either. Then vote and make your case known for what you think is just and compassionate. But then you know what your call is? No matter where you land politically on the issue, the Bible makes it clear what our attitude ought to be towards immigrants. There should be absolutely no room for the kind of attitude that says, I don't want these foreigners living near us. I don't want them going to my kids' schools. I don't want them, they don't look like us. They don't talk like us. They don't look like us. No, we are sojourners. We. We know the heart of not being home yet. Of all people, we are the most compassionate. Not only that, as, as a body of believers, don't we have the greatest news to share? Don't we have this incredible news that our deepest identity is not in where we have grown up or where we live geographically, but our deepest identity is that we are a citizen of the Most High God and His kingdom, and are we called to make disciples of all nations even if they're in our backyard? Should we not see this as a beautiful opportunity to show them the love of Christ and to share with them the gospel of Christ? Think about it. I know a lot of you are not, li or, um, yeah, that's hard to hear. Oh, well, this is God's word. <laughs> God also addresses how we are to treat orphans and widows here. In the, con in the cultural context back then, widows and orphans were completely dependent on others to survive. Very different than nowadays, right? Widows can work and have property and all that. Back then, very different. God is serious about calling people to care for those who are disadvantaged and vulnerable in their society. In fact, in the New Testament, James will, re will reiterate this when he says, look, same heart. Same heart is in the law. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Do you personally show compassion and care for any widow or any orphan? Did you know we have a, a, a list of widows in our church that we try to visit throughout the year? We try to bring flowers. We try to show them that they're not forgotten. And if there's a tangible need, we have a volunteers of, of, of men and women in our church called the Toolbox Ministry. And they'll go to homes, to, to men and women, anyone who needs the minor repairs in their home. If you're not able to do it, they're able to come alongside to do that. In Psalm 68, God said, I am the father to the fatherless and I am the defender of widows. God identifies with the powerless and takes up their cause. And so my question is, do you? Verses 25 to 27, God calls for justice and compassion for the poor. 
He doesn't forbid borrowing and lending. He says, if you lend money, how should you do it? Don't take advantage of the poor. In other words, no predatory loans. I'll, I'll leave that alone. The Bible is clear. You don't get rich off of other people's misfortunes. That's a perversion of justice. God is against anyone or anything that rigs the system against the weak. If you know someone who is a genuine need, what the law was meant to do was basically don't take advantage of them, help them. Help them. In fact, he says, if, if all he has to give you as a pledge, I need help, I need help. What do you have to prove you'll, you'll pay it back? All I have is the jacket on my back. He says, you can take the jacket for the day, but you better give it to him back at night because he needs it to sleep in. You know what he's basically saying in the law? You're like, well, what, is, what good does it do if I take it for a few hours? He's basically saying, he doesn't have anything. You give him help. For goodness sake, give him help. Jesus will take it a step further in the New Testament. In the book of Luke, he'll say, if you know someone who's struggling and asks for help, give without expecting anything in return. Chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. You say, well, can we get even more convicting? Right? Because this be even more uncomfortable? Yeah. God addresses how Israel should treat their enemies. Again, think justice and compassion. Some people think Jesus is the first person who came up with the teaching of love your enemies. And then you read the law and you go, oh, wait, here it is. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burdens, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it from him. If someone you can't stand is stranded on the side of the road, will you stop and help them? What if it's someone who hates you? I mean, I'm, if I, I, I could reason. I'm not going to help them. They might not be safe. I don't know why they hate me, or maybe I do know why they hate me, so that's why I don't want to help them. <laughs> isn't this, it goes back to last week's sermon, isn't that person made in the image of God? Right? They may not like you, you may not like them, but they're, they, they, God designed them. Their soul reflects the image of God. They need help. You can help them. Do you see how according to God's word, according to God, what is right and not how you feel about what is right is what should drive your actions. I will not feel like doing things that God calls me to do, but that doesn't mean I'm not called to do what is right and good. He's training his people to love their neighbor as themselves. He's making the case even your enemy is your neighbor. That's where Jesus got it from. And if the Pharisees understood that, if they had read their law, so how are you doing in this? How are you doing? God's law provides a foundation for loving your neighbor as yourself. Lesson number two, God's law provides a foundation for loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This passage is full of ways Israel's called to worship God. And I'll just boil it down in three ways. They're called to worship God through giving, through rest, and through celebration. There's a couple other commands like don't worship other gods, things like that. Don't sacrifice other gods. Yes. 28, verse 28 to 31 of chapter 22. The command for God's people is to offer the first fruits of their flock and their harvest. Right? The best of my flock, the best of my harvest, the very first things that come in, that belongs to God. Even their firstborn. 
But of course, he told him earlier, your firstborn son you can, you can redeem for an animal. But you show that the first belongs to me. Why? It's meant to show that everything you have belongs to me. You give the first off the top to, to, to demonstrate you understand that all of it belongs to me anyway. That's why it's worship. That's why you, it's saying I, I value God more than I value my things or the things that he's given me. And when they do this, they were showing they truly believe that all of it was in fact a gift from God. 2319, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. God calls his people to bring in their best, not their leftovers. They're to show that they value God more than they value what God gives. What about us? The New Testament has a lot of teaching about giving God a portion of what we have to show that he owns it all. When we gather for worship like this, do you bring God your best as an offering? Or do you just give him your leftovers? A few dollars here. Well, I don't need a volunteer. I just come in, I leave. Or do you believe that all that your gifts, all of your time, all of your talents, all your resources, all of it comes from God? Do you believe it comes from God or does it come from you? Do you trust that God can provide for all of your needs even as you give of your time and your resources generously to share the gospel? 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says we are to give willingly, right? Nobody twists your arm. Generously and joyfully. This is meant to be an honor. I get to write a check to show that God is more valuable than my money. It's not, I have to write a check to keep the lights on in this building. No. I mean, this building can go away. We're still Grace Baptist Church. I don't want it to, but it might. In verses 10 to 18, there are laws about worshiping God by rest and celebration. And they're to do this by keeping Sabbath and keeping the festivals. Notice here the Sabbath is connected to loving others. It's not just a day of rest because God rested in terms of creation. It's not just a day where they remember God redeeming them out of Israel, out of Egypt. It's a day for others to rest. It's a day to care for others. God says, work the land for six years and on the seventh year, let it rest. And as farmers have reminded me, giving the land a rest is, is good for the soil and is good for future crops. But God calls them also to do this. Notice verses 10 to 12. Do it for, your, for the sake of the poor among you that they might gather crops on that second year. They might glean from the fields. Do it. Give your animals a rest. Give your servants a rest. Give the, everyone a rest. Verse 12 says the same thing about the weekly Sabbath. Everyone gets a rest, not just a rest for you, but a rest for immigrants, a rest for your animals, a rest for your children. They need breaks too. Isn't it amazing that God commands us to rest? You would think, oh, that's obvious. No, we don't, we don't want to rest. We want to keep going. We want to keep working. Does your rhythm of work, rest, and worship make it clear you're trusting God and not yourself for your provision and your security? In verse 14 and following, God explains three main festivals that were meant to celebrate what he had done for his people. The first is the festival of unleavened bread. That's the, that, that festival is connected to Passover. So really, unleavened bread, Passover, it celebrates God's liberation from slavery. God rescued us from slavery. And every year, we keep this festival to remind ourselves that God did that out of pure grace and we are to celebrate it. 
Number two, they're to celebrate the festival of harvest, later known as Pentecost. This was connected to their rhythm of farming. It's an agricultural society. And when they bring, they start bringing stuff in, it's, it's a celebration that God has provided for us. He is our provider. He is the one who gives us everything good. And they celebrate that. They're to throw a party. Look at all the good things we have. And look at all that God has given to us. And then third, the celebration is called the festival of ingathering. That's at the end of harvest time. Later, it'll be called the feast of booths. And this celebrated God's salvation as a whole. From beginning to end, God is a God who has rescued his people, delivered his people, carried his people, as he says in Exodus 20, on eagle's wings. Why does God include these festivals in the middle of these rules? Right? Rule, 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 rule. Celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. Rule. Don't boil your gun goat in a mother's milk. Uh, what? <laughs> celebrate, though. Celebrate. Why? Why? It's because he's not just a God of justice. He's a God of celebration. You say, all these rules, oh, it's meant to be a burden. No, it's rules because you got to treat each other the way you love them. God, treat God like you love him. And then let me tell you, all year, I want you to have rhythms to celebrate my kindness and goodness in your life. How about that? Keep the law. Do it. Wow, we get to celebrate as a way of obeying? Yes. We get to celebrate as a way of relying on you? Yes. We get to do this all year long? Yes. What about us? Every week we gather in, yes, to listen to God's word, yes, to sit under his authority, yes, to confess and to sing and to give, but, but, but ultimately all of it is meant to celebrate God's salvation, isn't it? He's delivered us from a greater oppressor than Egypt and Pharaoh. He's delivered us from sin and death and rescued us by his mighty hand and brought us into his family and nothing could separate us from him. And every day we move closer to glory. We celebrate that and remind each other of that. I cannot think of a wiser plan than what God has already designed. And then we have holidays like Easter and Christmas and, and grace give things throughout the year that remind us of what we're called to celebrate and who we're called to trust. So we can love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then finally, God's law provides the foundation for Christ as the fulfillment of both law and love. We've said this for weeks now. The law has multiple purposes. The law reveals God's character, that he's holy. The law shows us our sinfulness. They could never measure up to it. They were always failing to do it. And the law points to our need for a savior. It points to Jesus. The law is all about loving God and loving your neighbor. And you might ask, well, why do we need laws to love? Our world, our world tells us we can love. We can love. We're able to love. Shouldn't we just love without being told to love? My response to you is, does love naturally flow out of you? And we just sang a song, our, our love is often cold. Isn't that true? Isn't that our confession? Or do you get up thinking, it is my joy to sacrifice every day for the people around me. It is my greatest joy. You want to walk all over me, coworker? Go ahead. I belong to Christ. I'm not going to say anything. Kid, you want to say these evil things to me, these mean things? It's okay. I, I love you so much. Whatever you want, whatever you want. Spouse? Uh, yeah, I'm a piece of dirt. I know. Okay, but I want, to, I want to make you an amazing meal. No, we go, you treat me that way? Watch what I do to you. We know how to do that right or wrong. Do you always do what is just and compassionate? 
we have to all admit there's empirical evidence that proves we don't love each other very well. And the Bible is just simply being honest about it and it calls it sin. Sin is, simple, is inherently self-centeredness. It's selfish. It is anti-love. You see, God gave the law because he knew sin on the inside would impact how his people treat each other on the outside. And so God gives his people very specific laws for a specific time to address their specific sinful tendencies in their hearts. And the laws were meant to limit the effects of those sinful tendencies. But if you read the history of Israel, you know the law didn't lead to a perfectly just and compassionate society. That's because the law was never meant to change them from the inside. For that, they needed a savior. We need a savior. Someone to rescue us from the slavery, not on the outside, not just oppression on the outside, but oppression on the inside. And that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came down from heaven as the God-man, fully God, fully man. And because he's fully God, he could fulfill the law perfectly. He loved God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know that? He loved his neighbor as himself. Every time, Jesus is the epitome of the law. He is law in action. He's treating women with utmost dignity. He's showing compassion to his enemies. He's welcoming outsiders and outcasts. He's, he's, he never lied. He never takes advantage of the poor. He offered to God his very best. He honored the Sabbath. He kept every single festival. festival. Jesus was completely just and fully compassionate. Jesus kept the law on our behalf. And this is good news. Because you and I continue to blow it, don't we? Maybe you're married and you have, you've held bitterness in your heart toward your spouse. The Bible calls us to love our enemies and you can't even love your spouse and you feel defeated about this. Maybe you rarely, if ever, give your best to God. You don't give a percentage of your resources to spread the gospel. You don't serve in any meaningful way. And you don't know, I, don't know what, I don't know what sin is plaguing your heart, but I know that it can feel so defeating because I know my sin. Maybe you feel like you're letting God down, or worse, maybe you feel like God has let you down. You see, when we measure ourselves against God's law, the truth is we have all failed and we need to acknowledge that. We need to acknowledge and feel the weight of that. I don't live up to God's commands anywhere in the Bible. And then, and then you look to Jesus. And then you turn your eyes to the cross. And then you remember Jesus lived a life of perfect love and died a cursed death on a cross. That he was the ultimate law giver and law keeper and then died as the lawbreaker. And then and see him doing that, not just for some people out there, not just for us as a whole. He did that for you. Jesus loves you. God says in this very passage, in chapter 22, verse 27, I am compassionate. You know how rare it is for God to identify with a quality first person? I am this. He says, I am compassionate. He always has been. And so Jesus comes and he dies as our substitute. He takes all of our guilt on himself. He took all the punishment for our breaking God's law. He was rejected. All the consequences, he was punished, right? All the consequences even here, they'll be devoted to destruction. You don't do this, you're gonna be devoted to destruction. Well, that was Jesus. 
abandoned for, for, for us by his friends, bore God's just wrath against sin. He died alone. He died so you can live. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. Up from the grave, he arose. We're going to sing that in a couple weeks. And he proved that he can not only take the guilt for law-breaking, he can give you his righteousness as a gift. He can give you his perfect record, right? You and I get, you know, F, 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 F. And Jesus is like, you know, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, A plus, A plus, A plus. But then he's like, look, you have my grades now. What? I'm an A plus, yep, every time. But I don't see myself. Yeah, but you have me crediting it to you for your whole career. And just like the Israelites were rescued by grace so that we can obey. Jesus invites us to trust him as Savior with all the mess, with all the muck. You're like, I don't don't deserve it. I know you don't deserve it. That's why he did it out of grace. And that you could receive his forgiveness by faith alone, not by working hard, not by earning your way into heaven. And then when you do receive him by grace, he begins to change you from the inside. he, He gives you his spirit to empower you to love God and love others. And each day that resurrection power living inside of you gives you what you need to live a more selfless, a more just, and a more compassionate life. That's why we sing you are free because you're bound. You're free, but you're bound by the love of God inside of you, the love of Christ, and you're bound for glory. And so the question today as you leave is, will you trust him as you seek to live a life, not by law, but a life of love? Let's pray. Father, We know we can't do this. We know this is so hard. Lord, maybe some of us feel like the gospel is so inspiring, so beautiful, so compelling, but then we got to get out and actually live with the people around us who are the people who hurt us the most. And we're, we're wondering, how do I do that? Lord, show us today. We don't need a law to do that. We don't need all these rules to, in this situation and that. What we need is the love of Christ indwelling us, empowering us. Help us to train ourselves for godliness, even as you trained the Israelites in godliness. Help us to train by looking to the cross and the empty tomb. Help us to keep remembering and even keep celebrating. Lord, show us that the joy of the Lord can be our strength. Help us to not walk out defeated thinking I'll never do this. Help us to walk out going, I want to celebrate Jesus. And when I celebrate Jesus, he gives me the strength to do the impossible. God, do this for the glory of your name among your people. Do this so that Grace Baptist Church might be in a a small way, but a significant way, a shining light, a city on a hill right in this part of the community so that as we live amongst one another, with one another, the world might see that we are Christians because we have love for one another, born out of our love for you. God, maybe some need to confess today that they keep trying to live with the selfish bent of sin driving their hearts, the self-protection that sin does. I can't trust. I can't open myself up. I can't forgive. Lord, I pray that everyone everyone hearing my voice would lay down their weapons 
and allow you to bring the healing and the restoration that only you can. We are desperate for you to do this. And we're waiting on you to do it. Because we know you can and we believe today you will. And I pray you would do it by the power and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.